probably take like uh, maybe one per family, one or two per family if you've got a big family there. That's got the, I had to make an audible this week on the text. I think I underestimated the mental and emotional toll that dropping your first child off at college would take. Uh, some of you are nodding knowingly. Uh, so we're going to look at 2 Timothy today. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to think about um, one of the objections that some people have to the Christian faith. Uh, and, and one of these objections goes something like this. It says basically you can't really trust the Bible. Uh, you can't really trust the Bible. Uh, one guy put it this way. He said, I see much of the Bible's teaching as historically inaccurate. We can't be sure the Bible's account of events is what really happened. And so you, you hear that objection. You, you can't really trust the Bible. Why, why should I listen to what the Scripture says? So what I want to do today is I want to try to get at that, but I actually want to broaden that out a little bit. I want to ask two questions. Uh, why do we do this every week? Why do we, we take the Bible and open it uh, and, and, and talk about a passage of Scripture? And then secondly, can we really trust this Bible that we open together each week? And so to do that, we're going to be reading, uh, John's almost got those all passed out, from 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Second Timothy 3 verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct... My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray for us. Father, I pray you'd help us uh, as we approach your scriptures now. I pray that you'd help me uh, to speak clearly as we think about this. Uh, I, I pray, Father, that you would show us this morning uh, the truthfulness of your word. Uh, show us that we can trust it and show us why we need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we, why do, we do this every week? Uh, why do we take a book that's you know around about 2,000 plus years old and pick a passage out of it and talk about it? I mean, certainly you guys could find something more entertaining to do for 30 minutes every Sunday morning. We could, we could let Keith keep playing for another 30 minutes and just keep singing. We could bring a karaoke machine in here and, and do karaoke. You know, we could show highlights of your favorite football team's greatest victories. I mean, all of those things would probably be more entertaining. So why do we do this? Why do we take a passage of Scripture and try to talk about it each week? 
Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Or the NIV says all Scripture is God-breathed. So one of the reasons that we do this every week is that we really believe that. We really believe that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. Uh, when, when we pick up the Bible, when we read the, these words, when we read the passage of Scripture we just read, we're actually reading God's words. And so we ought to pay attention to those words. We want to pay attention to those words. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's nice, but, but didn't men at the end of the day, weren't it men that really wrote the Bible? And that's true. Uh, men did write the Bible. God didn't sit down in heaven and, and type, out, type out the Bible on his MacBook and then send us all a PDF file to open. I mean, if he had done that, many of us would still be trying to get the file open. Um, but, but Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter and Paul are telling us is that, yes, people wrote the Bible, but God directed them in what they were writing. He used where they lived and their education and their personalities to shape what they said so that what they said, the words that they wrote down, were exactly what God wanted to be written down. Uh, it's, you think of light coming through a stained glass window and the way that looks. The men were like the stained glass window, but God designed them. He designed that stained glass window so that what was produced was exactly what He wanted to be produced. And so these words that are men's words are also the very words of God. And because of that, they're true words. And they're words that are, are faultless and without error. Um, this book claims that its words are true. And they're true whether we choose to accept them or not. They're true words. Uh, the, the events recorded in the Bible actually happen. They're God's words. Now, here's one reason that's important. Uh, I, I want you to imagine for a second that you're trapped uh, in a, a giant national forest and a giant forest fire has broken out. And, and you're trying to find a way out. Wouldn't it be great if you had a word from above? Wouldn't it be great if there was somebody in a helicopter overhead who could pinpoint where you were and where the fire is and the best way for you to get out of there? They, they could tell you which direction you needed to go. In the Bible, we have that. We have that word from above. We have direction from one who is all-seeing and all-knowing and all-present, one who loves us. Uh, when your computer breaks down, I mean, who would you rather talk to? You know, the, the, the guy in India or wherever that's making 25 cents an hour that you can't understand what he's saying? Or would you rather talk to the guy who made the computer? Would you rather have Bill Gates on the phone? You know, that's, that's an easy choice. In the Bible, we have a word from our designer. We have a word from our creator that we need to hear. And so that's, that's one reason why we do this every week. That we have this word from above. That's one reason why we study the Bible in small groups as we've mentioned some opportunities to do. That's one reason we encourage one another to store the word of God up in our hearts through memory and, and through reading the Bible because these words are God's words. They're breathed out by God. 
Now you might ask uh, at this point, okay, well, well, how do I really know that? How do I know that these words are actually God's words? How can I trust these words to be God's words? Uh, Esther Meek defines knowing this way. She says, knowing is the responsible human struggle to rely on clues, to focus on a coherent pattern, and submit to its reality. And then Jesus' illustration, those of you who are old enough, <coughs> excuse me, can remember in the 1980s, pretty much any <coughs> shopping mall you would walk into would have these big pictures of, they look like multicolored dots. Alright, you might remember these. And the idea was that you would, you would you'd walk up to these pictures and if you stare at them long enough, and I think you kind of had to back away from them and kind of let your eyes sort of do something funny, but, but eventually you would see this three-dimensional shape start to, to form in your field. Does anybody remember these? Okay, all right. Okay, good. It's like, y'all all thought I was crazy. Um, it's like a bad drug trip. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, eventually you would see these 3D shapes start to focus and you know they were it seems like they were always dolphins or maybe spaceships but anyway Meek says that the process of learning is a lot like that it's a lot like trying to, to see those shapes come into focus the process of knowing something is a lot like trying to see those shapes come into focus and this is what she writes she says there's three stages to it looking at the picture struggling to look through it at something yet unknown And looking through the picture at the three-dimensional image. The struggle and the switch that prefaces our seeing the dolphins reveals a kind of toggling. At some point in time, or over a period of time, from one way of viewing the picture to another way of viewing the picture. We move from looking at particulars to looking through them at a farther focus, relying on them to see something else that bears little resemblance to them. And so... What she's saying is when you come to know something and come to trust in something, the idea is that you look through the clues, and as you look through the clues, you begin to see this pattern form. And as you see the reality of this pattern that's formed, you submit yourself to that reality. So I want to try to answer this question, how do I know this is God's Word? By looking at some of the clues that, Lord willing, as you look at them, the truth that this is God's word will begin to take shape. All right. So here's where we're going to start, and I got I got to steal somebody's sheet. So because you talked, you wanted to announce something. Just kidding. Uh, just kidding. Look at the look at the second the second sheet the second paragraph. That's what that's called. The second paragraph here. This is taken from the the Westminster Larger Catechism. And excuse the archaic language, but but how doth how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? And it starts by saying this: the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God. And what does that mean? It says that the scriptures show themselves to us that they are the word of God. Well, well how does how do they do that? What are the clues? Uh, how do they show themselves to be the word of God? And they list several things. And I'm just going to hit these briefly. Uh, first of all, they say, by their majesty and purity, they manifest themselves to be the Word of God. Uh, if, if you read the Bible, you see that this is a majestic book. As you read the Bible, you see this is a pure book, that it doesn't contradict itself. 
Uh, Secondly, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole. What they're saying there is this whole book from beginning to end fits together to tell one story. Now stop and think about that for a minute. This is a book, a collection of writings, a collection of 66 books that were written by 40 different people over the span of at least 1,400 years. And it all fits together to tell one story of God redeeming His people from their sins. It, it, this whole thing fits together from Genesis to Revelation to tell one story even though there are 40 different human authors. Um, Number three, how does it show itself to be the Word of God? By the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. Uh, We'll hit on this again in a minute, but the Bible doesn't paint a flattering picture uh, of of the people in it. If I was making this up as one of the apostles, I'd certainly cast myself in a more favorable light. But from the beginning to the end, the heroes, the heroes of the Bible are constantly messing things up. From David committing murder and adultery to Peter denying that he even knows Jesus. The Bible paints this picture of sinful men and yet this gloriously awesome loving God. Uh, Fourthly, how they show themselves to be the Word of God. By their light and power to convince and convert sinners. Um, 1917, uh, the Marxists took over Russia and they began to print millions of anti-Christian tracts. And they would include scripture in these tracts in order to make fun of it. And to point out what they thought were mistakes in the scripture. But before too long they had to quit printing these. You know why? Because people were reading these portions of Scripture and getting converted reading them. And so the Bible is is powerful and it's able to convict and to convert sinners. Uh, Number five, uh, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. And that's simply saying, look look at the way uh, the Bible has been used in people's lives. Look at the way it impacts the life of believers. And how it shapes you and changes you and comforts you and encourages you. Uh, let me give you a couple more reasons. They're not, they're not on this sheet. Um, they're taken from a, a book called Tim Keller called The Reason for God. And they're, they're from chapter 7. If, if you want to go back and look at this, if you've got that book. Uh, but they are specifically, they relate specifically to the Gospels and, and to the life of Jesus. Because you'll hear people say, well, those Gospel accounts are just legends. They're just things that were made up by the early church. So let me, let me say a couple things in response to that. Number one, uh, the Gospels were written too early to be legends. And what I mean by that is that they were written too soon after the events that they actually depict to be legends. Uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written at most 40 to 60 years after the events that happened. Uh, Paul's letters, which talk about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, were written 15 to 20 years after those events. So when the the New Testament writers were writing these letters and claiming all of these things happened, 
there were still a lot of living eyewitnesses around. There are a lot of people who had seen these events. Uh, Paul says that 500 people saw the living Christ at once. Mark tells us that the man who helped Jesus carry the cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like I care, you know, like like why did why would he put that in there? Why does why does he see fit to add that detail? He put it in there because it's really happened, and you want to tell people, hey, go talk to Alexander and Rufus if you want to know the truth of this. Go talk to one of the. There's 500 people around who can tell you that these things actually happened. But it wasn't just the supporters of Christianity who were still around. The opponents of Christianity were still around as well. And Christianity never gets off the ground if these things didn't happen. Because there would be plenty of people around saying, this, is, this did not happen. We were there and this did not happen. But that didn't happen. Uh, everybody knew what had happened. Uh, Paul, talking about the events of Jesus' life, says to King Agrippa, these things were not in a corner. Like, these things didn't happen over here where, where nobody saw them. These were public, historically verifiable Events. The Gospels were written too early. The New Testament documents were written too early to be legend. And just to kind of show what I mean by this, if, if I stood up today and said, there was a guy at Wofford 25 years ago who died on a cross and rose from the dead, there would be people around Spartanburg who would be able to speak to that. Okay? It was the same way in this case. There were people around, as these things were being written and distributed, who were eyewitnesses to these events. Uh, number two, the, the content, why are these not legends? The content of the, the, the Gospels is too counterproductive to be a legend. Uh, a lot of people today, if they're trying to discount the Gospel, will say, well, the church has made this up to gain power and build their movement. But that doesn't really make any sense if you go back and actually read these. For instance... Uh, one of the, the biggest controversies in the early church was whether the Gentiles were going to have to be circumcised to be included in the church. It was a big deal. And if you're making this up, uh, it might have been helpful to go back and write something in the, that Jesus said about this, since you're followers of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't speak to it at all. And nobody thought to go back and like write something in because you just wouldn't do that because he didn't speak to it. And so they had to figure this out. Uh, another reason, the crucifixion is not something that you would make up if it didn't happen. Both Jews and Greeks of that day would have automatically assumed that Jesus was a criminal. Why do you make the leader of your movement look like a criminal? Why do you have him be crucified if that didn't actually happen. Why do you have Jesus saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't sound very heroic. Why do you depict the apostles, the disciples, the leaders of the early church as petty and jealous and constantly slow to get it? Why do you write that Peter was cussing and denying that he even knew Jesus? You don't do that unless that's actually what happened. These are things that actually happen. Well, some clues from the larger catechism. Some clues from Keller's book, Reason the God. And then I want to give you one more clue 
And this is from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, one of the reasons I believe in Christianity is because it sheds, it, it sheds light on everything. It makes sense of reality in a way that no other system of thought can. I think about it, 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 he's saying in this world of multiple religions, multiple faiths, multiple ways of looking at life, multiple stories, Lewis is saying that the story of Christianity is the true story. And it's the only story that makes sense out of everything else. It's, it's the key to the puzzle. It's the key to us seeing how everything fits together. The, the Christian story makes sense of our world. It makes sense of, of sin and evil and morality. It makes sense of life and death and joy and pain, of laughter and tears in a way that no other story does. By its light, we see everything else. By the light of the sun, we see everything else. Now, that's, I guess, that's eight clues for us to look at. Um, and if you're wrestling, maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with whether to believe that the Bible is actually the Word of God. And, and I, th- I think that's great. And I encourage you to continue to do that. I, I hope you'll continue to, to look at the clues and to think about the clues. But I hope in the midst of all that, that you'll also ask God to help you look through the clues. I hope that you'll also ask God to help you to see what those clues are actually pointing to. That this word is his word. Look back at the catechism question again. It's on the, the third line from the bottom. It's given all these reasons for us to think about. Here's how the Bible shows itself to be the word of God. And then it says this. But the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able to persuade it that they are the very word of God. Now, what are they saying? They're saying God has to make the clues come into focus so that we can see. God has to to open our eyes. Another way to put it, he has to open our eyes so that we can see. Now, why would... Why would they say something like that? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, at the end of the day, if, if, if you're staring at the clues, trying to get them to come into focus, what has to happen is that God himself has to work with your vision and enable those clues to come into focus for you. And maybe if you've really been wrestling with that, maybe one of the reasons it's not coming into focus for you yet is that you're depending on yourself. And you're working so hard to figure this out and try to make all of this come into focus. You're depending on your own wisdom, your own intelligence. And I would encourage you to cry out to God in the midst of that. God, would you use 
your word and, and by your spirit, would you help me to see that this is your word? Would you, would you open my eyes to the truthfulness? Would you, would you cause these clues to come together for me so that I can see that your word is true? And what that's calling you to do is, yeah, look at the clues and think about them, but doing it in a way that's not, you're not depending on yourself, but you're depending on God to make it all come together for you. Well, I gave you one reason why we do this every week because scripture is God breathed. Uh, I've tried to, to show you a few reasons why we believe that the scripture is God breathed and, and why you can trust it. And what I want to do now is, is to come back and give you one more reason that we do this, that we open the scriptures every week, and one more reason you should open the scriptures on a regular basis yourself. Look at verse 15 of our text. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The second reason we do this, the first is that they're God-breathed. The second reason we do this is because God uses this. God uses this book. God uses this story to, to rescue men and women from darkness, to bring us into salvation, to bring us into a relationship with Him. This is the story of how God delivers us from meaninglessness and despair. This is the story of how God rescues broken people and makes them whole. Um, but look, we all at some level know that there's something wrong with the world. I mean, you see it in the events of the last week. Uh, some of us have experienced incredibly painful things in our own lives. Some of us haven't. Yeah, we've dodged a bullet, but, but we will. But, but look, even, even the fleeting nature of our pleasure, it's not just the bad thing that tells us something's wrong with the world. Even the fleeting nature of our pleasures tells us that something is wrong. I mean, think about it. We find pleasure in something for a while, and then that wears off, right? And we have to move on <clears throat> to something new. I used to think um, House, a few years ago, was the, was the greatest television series ever. And then I eventually realized he was just some guy who pops Vicodin and solves medical mysteries that were never actually going to happen in real life. <clears throat> and so we, we all have those sorts of things where it's like, and this is the greatest, this is the greatest show ever. This is, and then it wears off. For us, And so we never quite find what we're looking for. Something's wrong with the universe. And so we move from one toy to the next. Excuse me. From one hobby to the next. From one job to the next. From one relationship to the next. Thinking, alright, finally, this is going to complete me. This is where I'm going to be satisfied. This is where it's all going to come together <clears throat> in the in sense and sensibility Mary Ann is convinced that Mr. Willoughby is the man who's going to complete her uh, she's banking everything on him uh, so much so that she's ignoring the clues as to who he really is and who everyone is telling everyone else knows that he is but she's banking on him, so much so that when he betrays her, she's not just sad, she's devastated. 
And she's devastated to the point of, of not even caring whether she lives or dies. And I'd argue that, that what she was looking for, even though she didn't know it, was that she was looking for a Savior. And that what we're looking for often, even though we don't realize it, is that we're looking for a Savior. This relationship is going to save me. This lifestyle is going to save me. Success is going to save me. Getting into this fraternity or sorority is going to save me. Having, having my budget finally come together, the house finally get cleaned up, it's going to save me and everything is going to be alright. And we, we don't ever put it in those terms. But I, I kind of think that's what we're doing. We're, we're running after our own Mr. Willoughby. And if I, if I just get him, or if I just get her, if I just then, then, then the world is going to be okay. And the, the scriptures remind us week after week that all those things that we're running after, all those things that we're looking to, they can't rescue us. Because they're not real saviors. The Bible tells us that the Savior is a person, but they tell us that He is God who has come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you entrust yourself to this Savior, to this Savior, He promises to restore your relationship with the one who made you. He promises to rescue you from the futility of life in a broken world. He promises to begin to undo all that damage that all those false saviors have done to you. He promises to make you someone new. To make you the person you're always intended to be. See, what Marianne had to see was that she was trying to put herself in the arms of the wrong lover. And she had to be brought to the place where she would put herself in the arms of the man who would actually give his life for her. See, what, what many of us have to see is that we're constantly trying to put ourselves in the arms of the wrong lover. And we need to put ourselves in the arms of Jesus. The only one who loves us enough that he would actually give up his life for us, even when we've been unfaithful to him. And you know, the, the whole Bible, uh, Jesus tells us, and look, even the, the Old Testament is written to point us to Jesus, the lover of our soul. Uh, So that more and more, we learn as we bathe ourselves in the Scripture, as we immerse ourselves in the Scripture, we learn to put ourselves into His arms and not the arms of all the false saviors that we're so constantly tempted to run to. That's all we do this week after week. That's why you need this day after that. It's it's so that you can run and put yourself in the arms of Jesus. Uh, Moving Emma in was very emotionally draining for for all of us. Um, Emma is is writing a blog. Kind of, I dropped my daughter off at college this past week. For those of you who don't know, Uh, she's writing a blog, kind of chronicling this, and it was it was draining to her too. And, And she wrote that after we dropped her off, she put away her groceries and she read a psalm. And that was all that she could muster to do right then. Um, why, why do we do this every week? It's so that when you get dropped off at the dorm, or when, your children, when you drop your children off at the dorm, or when whatever stressful, hard situation comes into your life, you'll pick up a psalm and read it. Uh, why, do, why do we do this every day? Why do we do this every week? Why do you need to pick it up every day? Because it's creating tracks in your heart. 
is creating a habit in your life. So that, so that when those difficult things happen in our lives, your first move isn't to binge on Netflix or ice cream or alcohol or porn or whatever. Your first move is, I need to binge on Jesus. And I've created a habit of doing that. And so that's natural to me. That's why we do this every week. Because we need Jesus every week. We need Jesus every day. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you that it is true and powerful and comforting. And that it brings us to you and and keeps us in you. Uh, Help us to trust that it is true. Help us to believe it. Help us to rely on it. Uh, Help us to read it and get it inside of us. Uh, We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.